Boy, the Magic Island. The next morning, everyone got up early and eager to continue the journey. There was another full day's traveling to be done before we reached our final destination, most of it by boat. So after a rapid breakfast, our cavalcade left the Grand Hotel in three more taxis and headed for Oslo Docks. There we went on board a small coastal steamer, and Nanny was heard to say, I- I'm sure it leaks. We shall all be food for the fishes before the day is out. Then she would disappear below for the rest of the trip. We loved this part of the journey. The splendid little vessel with its single tall funnel would move out into the calm waters of the fjord and proceed at a leisurely pace along the coast, stopping every hour or so at a small wooden jetty where a group of villagers and summer people would be waiting to welcome friends or to collect parcels and mail. Unless you have sailed down the Oslo fjord like this yourself on a tranquil summer's day, you cannot imagine what it is like. It is impossible to describe the sensation of absolute peace and beauty that surrounds you. The boats weave weaves in and out between countless tiny islands, some with small, brightly painted wooden houses on them, but many with not a house or a tree on the bare rocks. These granite rocks are so smooth that you can lie and sun yourself on them in your bathing costume without putting a towel underneath. We would see long-legged girls and tall boys basking on the rocks of the islands. There are no sandy beaches on the fjord. The rocks go straight down to the water's edge, and the water is immediately deep. As a result, Norwegian children all learn to swim when they are very young, because if you can't swim, it is difficult to find a place to bathe. Sometimes when our little vessels slipped between two small islands, the channel was so narrow we could almost touch the rocks on either side. We would pass rowboats and canoes with flaxen-haired children in them, their skins browned by the sun and we would wave to them and watch their tiny boats rocking violently in the swell that our larger ship left behind. Late in the afternoon, we would finally, we would come finally to the end of the journey, the island of Tiyom. This is where our mother always took us. Heaven knows how she found it, but to us it was the greatest place on earth. About 200 yards from the jetty, along a narrow dusty road, stood a simple wooden hotel painted white, It was run by an elderly couple whose faces I still remember vividly, and every year they welcomed us like old friends. Everything about the hotel was extremely primitive, except the dining room. The walls, the ceiling, and the floor of our bedrooms were made of plain, unvarnished pine planks. There was a wash basin and a jug of cold water in each of them. The lavatories were in a rickety wooden outhouse at the back of the hotel, and each cubicle contained nothing more than a round hole cut in a piece of wood. You sat on the hole, and what you did there dropped into a pit ten feet below. If you looked down the hole, you would often see rats scurrying about in the gloom. All this we took for granted. Breakfast was the best meal of the day in our hotel, and it was all laid out on a huge table in the middle of the dining room from which you helped yourself. There were maybe fifty different dishes to choose from on that table. There were large jugs of milk, which all Norwegian children drink at every meal. There were plates of cold beef, veal, ham, and pork. There was cold boiled mackerel submerged in aspic. There were spiced and pickled herring, fillets, sardines, smoked eels, and cod's roe. There was a large bowl piled high with hot boiled eggs. There were cold omelets with chopped ham in them, and cold chicken and hot coffee for the grown-ups, and hot crisp rolls baked at the hotel kitchen, which we ate with butter and cranberry jam. There were stewed apricots and five or six different cheeses, including, of course, the ever-present gyotost, that tall, brown, rather sweet Norwegian's goat's cheese, which you find on just about every table in the land. After breakfast, we collected our bathing things, and the whole party, all ten of us, would pile into our boat. 
Everyone has some sort of boat in Norway. Nobody sits around in front of the hotel, nor does anyone sit on the beach because there aren't any beaches to sit on. In the early days, we had our own, only a rowboat, but a very fine one it was. It carried all of us easily with places for two rowers. My mother took one pair of oars and my fairly ancient half-brother took the other and off we would go. My mother and the half-brother, he was somewhere around 18 then, were expert rowers. They kept in perfect time and the oars went click, 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 click in their wooden row locks and the rowers never paused once during the long 40-minute journey. The rest of us sat in the boat trailing our fingers in the clear water and looking for jellyfish. We skimmed across the sound and went whizzing through narrow channels with rocky islands on either side, heading as always for the very secret tiny patch of sand on a distant island that only we knew about. In the early days, we needed a place like this where we could paddle and play about because my youngest sister was only one. The next sister was three and I was four. The rocks in the deep water were no good to us. Every day for several summers, that tiny secret sand patch on the tiny secret island was our regular destination. We would stay there for three or four hours, messing about on the water and in the rock pools and getting extraordinarily sunburnt. In later years, when we were all a little older and could swim, the daily routine became different. By then, my mother had acquired a motorboat, a small and not very seaworthy white wooden vessel, which stood far too low in the water and was powered by an unreliable one-cylinder engine. The fairly ancient half-brother was the only one who could make the engine go at all. It was extremely difficult to start, and he always had to unscrew the sparkling plug and pour petrol into the cylinder. Then he swung a flywheel round and round with a bit of luck. After a lot of coughing and spluttering, the thing would finally get going. When we first acquired the motorboat, my youngest sister was four and I was seven, and by then all of us had learnt to swim. The exciting new boat made it possible for us to go much farther afield, and every day we would travel far out into the fjord, hunting for a different island. There were hundreds of them to choose from. Some were very small, no more than 30 yards long. Others were quite large, maybe half a mile in length. It was wonderful to have such choice of places, and it was terrific fun to explore each island before we went swimming off the rocks. There were the wooden skeletons of shipwrecked boats on those islands, and big white bones, were they human bones? And wild raspberries and mussels clinging to the rocks. Some of the islands had shaggy, long-haired goats on them, and even sheep. Now and again, when we were out in the open water beyond the chain of islands, the sea became very rough, and that was when my mother enjoyed herself most. Nobody, not even the tiny children, bothered with life belts in those days. We would cling to the sides of our funny little white motorboat, driving through the mountainous white-capped waves and getting drenched to the skin while my mother calmly handled the tiller. There were times, I promise you, when the waves were so high that we slid down into a trough, the whole world disappeared from sight. Then up and up the little boat would climb, standing almost vertically on its tail, until we reached the crest of the next wave, and then it was like being up on top of a foaming mountain. It requires great skill to handle a small boat in seas like the these. The thing can easily capsize or be swamped if the bows do not meet the great combing breakers is just the right angle. But my mother knew exactly how to do it, and we were never afraid. We loved every minute of it, all of us except for our long-suffering nanny, who would bury her face in her hands and call loud upon the Lord to save her soul. In the early evenings, we nearly always went out fishing. We collected mussels from the rocks for bait. Then we got into 
either the rowboat or the motorboat and pushed off to drop anchor later in some likely spot. The water was very deep and often we had to let out 200 feet of line before we touched bottom. We would sit silent and tense waiting for a bite and it always amazed me how even a little nibble at the end of that long line would transmit it to one's finger. A bite! Someone would shout jerking the line. I've got him! It's a big one! It's a whopper! And then came the thrill of hauling in the line, hand over hand and peering over the side into the clear water to see how big the fish really was as he neared the surface. Cod, whiting, haddock, and mackerel, we caught them all and bore them back triumphantly to the hotel kitchen where the cheery fat woman who did all the cooking promised to get them ready for our supper. I tell you, my friends, those were the days.